Hello everyone, welcome to episode 508 of Cold Leaf Soundcheck. I'm Aaron Pollock. This season we're chatting with the performers of the Cold Leaf Spy Festival in Chicago September 23rd and 24th at Metro. Friday night, the XR, Meat Beat Manifesto, Clock DVA, The Black Queen, Vampire Anvil, Chant, Polyfuse, and Hyde. Saturday, the XR, The Cox, Pig, Cubany, 16 Volt, Dead When I Found Her, Bloody Knives, and Conga. Head to coldleaves.net for more information and ticket links. This week we're chatting with Walter Flakis. Kicking off Cold Waves Thursday night, September 22nd at the Sold Out Double Door, this is Stabbing Westward. Too much 
So you guys are 30 years old this year. Tell me what was going on in 1986. 1986, Christopher and I were going to, uh, we were at, at uh, college at Western Illinois University in Macomb, Illinois here. We met at summer band camp when we were both in high school, actually. Uh, we were both chasing the same girl, and I don't think either of us got got the girl in the end, but we ended up being friends. And we, we lived about 30 miles apart, and so we would, like, hang out when we could. And then he eventually moved to Macomb to go to school at Western, which is where I lived. And um, we would went through numerous bands and incarnations with different people and whatnot. But eventually, in 1986, we were really wrapped up in what was going on with the wax track scene, really into ministry and Front 242 and everything that was going on out of Chicago and wax tracks, for that matter. And then we would try to replicate that. We bought our first keyboard and drum machine and four track and then just started doing our own things based on the, the songs that we heard. Uh, but now Macomb is a really small town of about 20,000 people in the middle of cornfields in Illinois and not many people were hip to what we were doing so we were really on an island on our own but it didn't matter because that's that's what we wanted to do and that's really kind of where the name Stepping Westward came from because we had a show in about a week and we needed to come up with a name so so we were going Christopher and I were at WIUS the college radio station and we were going through all of the album liner notes trying to search for catchphrases that stood out and we stumbled upon this one that said Stabbing Westward but it stood out because we went to school at Western and people didn't get what we were doing and stabbing westward, stabbing westward. It just seemed like, uh, you know, it, it would work for the time being. And who, if I had known that 30 years later we'd still have the name Stabbing Westward, maybe I would have tried a little bit harder. But pe- <laughs> pe- people, people tell me they love the name, so we'll stick with it. We would uh, record on, our, on the four track that we had, and then we would go into uh, the local recording studio and try to do better versions of it, and we would uh, send off tapes, and, we, and that's exactly what we did. We just did that kind of thing. We played a handful of shows, but th- this was a small town. It really didn't mean anything, but that's really where uh, the genesis of Stabbing Westward started was in Macomb back in 1986. It really didn't take fruition and come to really be until... We both migrated to Chicago, which is about 250 miles further uh, northeast, and that was probably in 1988. We, by that 1988, we were both in Chicago, and 89, we started the revolving door of members coming in to try to fit into what we were doing, and that, and then we started the same thing, recording. And I had a the studio was in my bedroom at the time, and I wrote Shame in that bedroom in 1989, I think. We just started accumulating, and eventually, by 1990, 1991, we had incorporated a full band at that point with a a guy playing drums, Angelo Negretti, played drums for us, and his roommate, oddly enough, was a bass player named Jim Sellers, who uh, was really just kind of coming along for the ride because we wanted a drummer, and, well, Angelo's roommate plays bass, and Christopher had been playing bass at the time, so it's like, well, maybe, Christopher, you can just be a front guy, and we'll, we'll... take Angela's roommate and who knew that Jim would uh, last the, the duration with us which is great and then it's Christopher and I and we had a, another guitar player Andy Hunter at the time and we would do these shows at Avalon here in Chicago and they became really great shows take me back to the EO Jesus EP there's not a lot of info out there 
Ewood Jesus came about maybe 1990. We were, uh, Christopher and I were in Chicago. He had a friend who had a recording studio on the south side of the city, which was not the, the greatest neighborhood at the time. It was a, a, like a record stop. So like they, they stocked all kinds of house and hip-hop 12-inch vinyl and, and all that kind of stuff on the second floor. But then one little room was a studio, and we had access to the studio, but we couldn't get in there until like 11 o'clock or midnight at night. And so... We had written these songs, and here's the interesting thing about Iwa Jesus, is that it was a cassette-only release. There were four songs on this cassette, and those songs were Violent Mood Swings, Shame, a song called P.O.M.F., which stood for Pissed Off Motherfuckers, which later became the song The Thing I Hate on Darkest Days, and then there was a fourth song called Plastic Jesus that never saw the light of day yet. So we would work all night long in the studio in, you know, just on the south side of Chicago by Christopher and I. And then we'd bring in a couple of other people. Andy Hunter played guitar on it. And his girlfriend, uh, Christy Day, did some vocals on Plastic Jesus. But um, we sculpted the entire thing in that studio, Christopher and I. And um, it actually came out really well. I actually have a digital copy of it that I'll listen to. And it'll be like, you know what? For what? The resources we had and the time in our career that it was, it actually came out pretty good. So we would go out and we'd play these shows. We'd sell uh, these cassettes of the Iwa Jesus EP at these shows. And it kind of took on a life of its own. And when you think about it, I mean, three out of those four songs ended up on the first three Stabbing Westward records. So um, we just kind of spread it out. But uh, it was really the foundation of everything that Stabbing Westward became. I feel it's the pain 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 I feel it
We had actually written 
hey, the fourth record, we had all of the songs ready to go. We were all set to record the fourth record for Columbia uh, with Bob Rock as the producer. We were actually so close to doing that that the studio had been booked. The places we were going to stay in Hawaii where Bob Rock has his studio was booked. He was flying to L.A. to do pre-production with us. That was going to begin on Monday. He was flying on Sunday, the Friday before we got dropped. Columbia had to pay for all of that anyway, but for whatever reason, they wanted to get us off the roster and whatnot. So we had our tail between our legs, and then it was a matter of just trying to figure out how this record was going to come out. We ended up working with Ed Buller on the fourth record. You know, I just th- I, I think ultimately it ended up going in a direction that was different than where the band had been heading. It felt like when the record did come out, it sounded very different than the record that we had demoed and were planning to make for Columbia. And we uh, did the, the tour dates and nothing was on the same level. And it, you could just tell that the gas was running out of the whole thing. And we were always at the mindset, let's quit while we're on top or at least close to on top before you know, we, we run it into the ground and then we look ridiculous. So uh, it was a pretty easy decision to make at the beginning of 2002 after the record cycle for the self-titled album had run its course to say, you know what, we're really waffling here. We had tried to write some songs for a fifth record, but at that point, the direction of the band had had evaporated. We didn't know where we wanted to go with it. So um, it was pretty easy to say, you know what, now's the time. Let's call it call it a day and go our separate directions. And at that point, you know, Christopher is like, let's start another band. We can uh, start at Ground Zero and and do what we set out to do, you know, years ago. But uh, I had a family, and I'm just like, you know what? I need to go and support my family, so I'm going to go back into radio at that point. Then he went off and started the Dreaming, and um, we all kind of went our separate ways at that point. Until, what, about two and a half years ago now, uh, Christopher and I reconnected after several years of not talking and um, decided to see what was left in the tank and wrote some songs. And next thing you know, we were halfway to what was the, the last dreaming record. At the end of the day, we I think we're both really, really proud of that record. And it to us, to me anyway, it sounds like it picked up right where Darkest Days left off. Or it, it makes a good follow-up to Darkest Days and kind of, I felt, put things on the right path to where they should have gone. And I, I, I feel good about that. And then we had a, a great time hopping back into a van, doing it old school and touring last year. And now it's led us to this point to where it's like, does anybody care about stabbing? And then talking to Jason at uh, Jason Novak from Acumen and Cold Waves. And the idea came out about, would you possibly want to do the kickoff party? I'm like, you know what? Let's see. Let's see if anybody still cares. I was blown away by the response that we got when the show went on sale. I had, I, I, I kind of figured that we would do pretty well, that it might sell out before before September, but I had no idea that it would do uh, the business that it did selling out as fast as it did day of. Yeah, I think it sold out in, in about three minutes. Beyond this one show that you're doing right now, have you had any thoughts about doing any more? Are you just going to take it one step at a time? I think ultimately we'll take it one step at a time, but the thought has crossed uh, our minds going like, hmm, wonder if we should do something further. But um, but we got to see. I mean, we've invited Jim to be a part of this show. We'd love to have him on stage with us, but uh, he has said that he's not going to be able to uh, to do that. He wishes us well and, and hopes we have a good show. 
but I'd love to be able to do something when he's able to be a part of it because he was a, a part of stabbing as we went through the years. So it'd be great to have him involved. But ultimately, we have uh, we have four fifths of the Darkest Days touring band on stage for this, and um, it'll be interesting. Maybe maybe there'll be something else that we can do. We'll see. Yeah. 
On this episode, you heard nothing slipping away and waking up beside you. For Stabbing Westward information, head to facebook.com slash stabbingwestwrd. Our opening music is Monster Zero by Accumination. Our closing music is Messiah by Splinter Group. Subscribe to our show through iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app with the links found in the show notes. Join us next week as we chat with Eric Powell from 16 Volt. Our closing segment each week is dedicated to the inspiration for Coldblade's fallen Chicago musician and sound man Jamie Duffy. Here's Jim Marcus from Die Warsaw and Go Fight on Working with Jamie. I remember when I was younger and working on just working on remixes for other people and stuff like that, that we had this issue where there was a uh, sister machine gun record that was being released and uh, Wax Tracks was going through this period where they were trying to see if they could reach a larger audience and they brought in some rap band called Onyx to remix it. They charged them like five grand or something ridiculous at the time to remix this thing. They didn't, no one was crazy about the remix. And they didn't have another remix, and so they weren't going to put the record out. And I remember sitting there telling Jamie that we couldn't do that. They couldn't put the record out because, you know, no, they didn't have a remix. And I told him I would do a remix if we had some studio time and I, if I had any help. And he said he would help me. And the two of us basically uh, conned some studio time out of this and did a bunch of remixes for the record so it could come out. And I think the reason why I think about that more than any of the other records that were maybe bigger or more important or more interesting is because I just felt like I had a connection with somebody who wanted the same thing that I did, which was just that a record would come out. And that the idea that here was this song that wasn't going to come out, nothing was going to happen with it because some asshole rap band wanted too much money was just as unacceptable to him as it was to me. And I felt like really a part of something, you know, at that moment that I hadn't felt in a while.